Welcome, and thank you for staying by. At this time, all participants will be on listen only until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, you may press star one to ask a question. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, please disconnect at this time. I'd like to turn the meeting over to Marissa Kerma, Program Manager of the Middle East Program at the Wilson Center. You may begin. Thank you very much, Operator. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining today's Ground Truth Briefing on China's COVID-19 diplomacy in the Middle East. Uh, today's GTB, as we refer to the Ground Truth Briefing, is a collaboration between the Wilson Center's Middle East program and the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. The discussion today is a very important one as the world continues to battle COVID-19, not only in mitigating the spread, but also in addressing the economic fallout of this global pandemic. Compounded with sharp fluctuations that we've seen in the oil market this year, these new economic challenges have most certainly hit the Middle East quite hard, particularly in oil-producing countries, but also the more dependent non-oil-producing economies. This is crucial to today's discussion, given China's economic and mostly transactional relationship with the Middle East. First, bilateral trade, um, oil trade, that defined China's relationship with the Middle East historically. And second, and more recently, with China's Belt and Road Initiative that was announced back in 2013 um, and had always included several countries of the Middle East, either through attending Belt and Road Forums in Beijing each year, signing memorandums of understanding, or labeling various projects as part of BRI. This year, there's a new bond or tie that has formed between China and the Middle East, and that is COVID-19. So with COVID, and particularly over the past few months, Chinese Middle Eastern relations have witnessed um, mutual support. We've seen deliveries of medical aid. Um, and media slogans. And this is what Lucille Greer, Schwartzman Fellow at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, and today's moderator, has called China's COVID-19 diplomacy. In her recently published Viewpoint article with the Middle East program, Lucille notes that despite this show of solidarity, there's more to the story between China and the Middle East. This pandemic has also widened existing cracks in this partnership which may threaten the future of this relationship. Lucille, we're truly looking forward to the discussion today with the esteemed panelists that you've invited, Jonathan Fulton of the Atlanta Council and Jacobo Shita, Al-Sabah Doctoral Fellow at Durham University. Please join me in welcoming our talented and knowledgeable fellow, Lucy Greer, to kick off today's discussion. On to you, Lucy. Thank you so much for that introduction, Marissa, and thank you to everyone who has been able to join us for this Ground Truth Briefing. My name is Lucille Greer, and I am a Schwartzman Fellow based at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Although, as Marissa mentioned, I often have the pleasure of collaborating with our Middle East program to research China's foreign policy in the Middle East. This topic has taken on new urgency with the challenges presented by the novel coronavirus. China watchers began hearing of this new disease beginning in early January, but none of us could have predicted the full scope of COVID-19's devastation around the world and in the Middle East. There have been over 700,000 cases in the region and more than 17,000 deaths. 
with some countries taking a disproportionate blow as a result of domestic mishandling, amongst other challenges. Additionally, the economic ripple effects from what began as a Chinese domestic crisis would eventually hit the Middle East, as China is the world's largest net oil importer, plus its status as a major trading and investment partner. The oil market, upon which many Middle Eastern economies depend, has witnessed unprecedented fluctuations that are in no small part due to the drop in Chinese demand, which fell 1.8 million barrels per day in the first quarter of 2020. While Chinese demand is rising again, it is unclear whether the Chinese economic recovery will be robust enough to undo the damage to the global economy and oil market. The full scope of COVID-19's effect on Chinese-Middle Eastern relations may not be understood for some time. This is a new position for China in the Middle East. It has been forced to go on the defensive. China has made its name in the region as a fresh alternative to the traditional foreign powers in the Middle East. It brands itself as the champion of win-win cooperation, a phrase that it uses in its diplomacy throughout the developing world. Chinese President Xi Jinping's primary foreign policy initiative on which he has hung his legacy, the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, has been upheld to Middle Eastern countries as a solution for some of their own economic woes. Middle Eastern governments have been very receptive of China's overtures and made their own, such as easing visa qualifications for those bearing Chinese passports. Yet, during this international crisis, China is deeply insecure about taking the blame for the pandemic. Just two days ago, the Chinese government released a white paper that was 37,000 words long with claims of how effective and transparent their response was. That insecurity is felt in the Middle East, where visa allowances have been walked back and China-specific travel bans have been enacted in a slew of countries. One of China's immediate mitigation strategies in the Middle East was something I wrote about with the Middle East program, as Marissa mentioned earlier. As we know, China has a sophisticated apparatus for both domestic and international messaging, which includes an arm that operates in Arabic. Chinese state media sources like The People's Daily and China Global Television Network, or CGTN, have maintained Arabic language versions since the early 2000s. These tools were turned towards the Middle East from the beginning of the crisis and have adapted to the various challenges thrown China's way in the international arena. When word of the coronavirus hit international news, these outlets began putting out articles from Arab medical volunteers or residents in Wuhan and China who wrote about their confidence in the Chinese state's response to the epidemic. Later in March, when the international conversation turned towards the United States calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus, news articles and opinion pieces appeared that condemned the United States' rhetoric, criticized the United States' domestic response, and charged the U.S. with human rights abuses. CGTN even shared a translation of a Chinese social media post that included the conspiracy theory that COVID-19 originated in the United States. When China drew criticism for discrimination against foreigners, the People's Daily published articles that stated foreigners and citizens alike receive equal treatment in China. A constant theme through China's state messaging has been the appeal for its heroic medical workers. Chinese diplomats in the region have been very active on social media, stating that the coronavirus is an opportunity for China to be a good partner, championing slogans such as Ma Bud Corona, or Together Against the Coronavirus. China's efforts have been reciprocated by a number of Middle East publications who praise China's response to the coronavirus outbreak. 
whether this bilateral messaging campaign lives up to the realities of Middle East China ties during COVID-19 is something I think our two speakers will be able to address quite well. Our first speaker is Dr. Jonathan Fulton. Dr. Fulton is a non-resident senior fellow for Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council. He has also served as an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi. An expert on Chinese policy towards the Middle East, Dr. Fulton has written widely on the topic for both academic and popular publications. He is the author of China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies, which I cannot recommend enough, and co-editor of External Powers and the Gulf Monarchies. Dr. Fulton received his PhD from the University of Leicester, where his dissertation focused on Chinese relations with the Gulf Cooperation Council member states. He also holds degrees from Staffordshire University, the University of Southern Queensland, and Dalhousie University. He will address the economic side of China's COVID-19 diplomacy and the various deals struck between the Middle East and China in the wake of the coronavirus. Our second speaker is Jacopo Shita. Jacopo Shita is the Sheikh Nasser al-Muhammad al-Sabah Doctoral Fellow at the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. He holds a bachelor's degree in international affairs and diplomacy from the University of Bologna and a master's degree in Middle East politics from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Jacopo's doctoral project explores the role formed by China in the Sino-Iranian relationship from the 1979 revolution to the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran nuclear deal. His research interests include the international politics of the Middle East, Chinese interests in the Persian Gulf, Iranian foreign policy, and nuclear politics and proliferation in the MENA region. Jacopo's works and analyses have appeared with outlets like the Atlantic Council, Force and Bazaar, and the London School of Economics Middle East Center. He will address the unique case of Iran in China's COVID-19 diplomacy in the region. We're very lucky to have such talented scholars with us to discuss this new phase of Chinese Middle Eastern relations during COVID-19. As a reminder, if you have any questions for our speakers, please press star one to enter the queue for the question and answer portion of our call. You can direct your question to which speaker you'd like, or I will direct appropriately. So let's begin with our first speaker, Dr. Fulton. Go ahead, Dr. Fulton. Well, thanks, Lucille, for that um, generous introduction, and thank you also for inviting me to this. It's a really interesting topic, and uh, happy to, to to engage with you guys on this. Um, I think one thing that that's very interesting is you can see in the past, well, throughout the century, China's um, position in the Middle East has become very, very deep, and and I believe uh, it was referred to as transactional in the in the beginning. I think China's relationships across the Middle East have become much denser than, than uh, maybe it would appear at first blush. Uh, it's across um, trade, of course, and, and, and investment. It's across security issues, diplomacy, um, soft power affairs. It's a really quite mature set of relations. Um, so it, it, it's with this COVID crisis, it's not that they're starting from, from nowhere. They actually have a pretty deep footprint already. Um, one thing that has to be understood, I think, before we get into the COVID crisis is just that China doesn't do alliances. They've had a, a non-alliance policy in place since 1982. They don't want to get caught up in other countries' uh, security entanglements. Uh, what they do instead is uh, strategic partnerships. And these are hierarchical. There's a different set of uh, 
obligations or, or commitments with each one. Um, but at the top level, it's called the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Five countries in the Middle East have this. It's the, the, the highest level of diplomacy that China exercises. These countries are Iran and Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and Algeria. Um, this means that there's a lot of economic cooperation, there's a lot of political cooperation. Um, they, they, they work very closely together, and they've got a pretty sophisticated apparatus to, to put the relationship forward. Now, why this matters for the COVID crisis is what you see, the countries in the Middle East that have been getting the most aid and support from China are the countries that have these types of uh, strategic partnerships or comprehensive strategic partnerships. So it's not a coincidence that you see countries like Iran and Saudi and the UAE um, really at the upper end of its cooperation with China in uh, the response to the COVID. Um, it's been pretty interesting to watch. I'm, I'm based in Abu Dhabi. You mentioned I'm at Zayed University here. Um, I've been in Abu Dhabi since 2006. And, um, you know, over that time, I've seen China really become a much bigger regional actor. Um, when the COVID crisis started in Wuhan, um, in the Gulf, you'd see a lot of these partner countries sending aid, sending uh, medical equipment, sending money to China. Uh, China went, uh, was, was a recipient of, of support. Um, once China seemed to get it under control in Wuhan and it started to spread first in Iran and then throughout the rest of the Gulf, that, that dynamic changed and China became a donor. They've been, as you mentioned, very effective in public messaging, and that's not something China typically has done very well. You know, China's soft power or public messaging has often been pretty ham-fisted. Here in the Gulf, you've seen um, them using Twitter quite effectively. The, the Saudi ambassador has taken to Twitter and uh, will, will you know, message in support of Saudi. He'll say things like, oh, now that I'm in lockdown or I'm in quarantine, I'm staying home and enjoying these, these great Saudi novels that I've always wanted to read. Uh, you see a lot of diplomats and spokespeople from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, praising their, their Gulf partners um, for the support they sent early on and saying, we'll do anything we can to help. Um, but beyond the public messaging, you see a lot of elite-level support. You know, different foreign ministers have, have, um, have publicly expressed thanks to China for what they've done and, and, and referred to China as a model of how to, to combat this. Um, and there's been a lot of material support beyond the, the rhetoric and beyond the messaging. There has been serious material support that goes behind it. China sent tons of PPE, masks, gloves, protective gear, um, uh, disinfectants. They've built field hospitals. They took a, a labor camp in Kuwait and turned it into a field hospital. Um, they've built a, hosp a field hospital in Dubai. Um, they've also sent a lot of experiential aid. So they've taken the best practices that um, they've, they've used and they've been coordinating with their uh, counterparts in the Gulf or in the Middle East and, and saying, look, this is how we track it. This is how we trace it. Here are apps that will help. Here's, uh, here's our experience in combating it. So they've actually stepped up in a, in a very big way. And, um, and this is important because really uh, whether or not um, – you just, you, however you feel about how all this started, the fact is China has been very effective in reaching out to its allies, or not its allies, its partners, and, and offering support. And you don't see a lot of other great powers doing the same thing. Most countries have been kind of uh, stuck in their own uh, response to the, the crisis at home and, and not really reaching out to, to countries overseas. So China's been pretty good at that. One thing that's interesting is uh, a Chinese company called BGI, and that's something I think a lot of folks are going to want to keep an eye on. BGI is a, a, a based in Shenzhen in southern China near Hong Kong, and um, they have been leading 
the the um, I guess the fight against COVID. And a lot of, of Middle Eastern countries have been cooperating with BGI. So here in Abu Dhabi, there's a company called uh, G42. Um, it's based actually just about two minutes from my home here. Um, that's mostly an AI company. Uh, they signed a contract in March with BGI. Um, and this has been doing a lot of testing uh, in, in the Emirates. I think 2 million of about 10 million people have been tested already. A lot of that is coming from from uh, cooperation with BGI. Uh, they signed recently a, a deal with Saudi, a $265 million deal um, to, to send over 9 million tests and build six labs. Um, they, they're cooperating in Israel. They're, they're doing something like 20,000 tests a day in Israel. So it's a very... Um, very big presence. They've actually handled this in a, in a pretty interesting way. Now, it's interesting when you talk about the economic effects, because obviously in the Gulf, what we have, or in the Middle East, uh, I guess most of my commentary is about the Gulf, because that's, that's mostly what I focus on. Um, the relationship often gets described as, you know, Chinese consumer products for oil. And I think that's kind of a, a, a very limited way of looking at it. China's got a huge um, financial infrastructure in the Middle East, uh, they've got a lot of banks, they've got a lot of investment companies, they've got a, a, a very big expatriate population. Um, beyond that, they, they're also the biggest source, the biggest external source of FDI into the Middle East, they're the biggest trading partner of most countries in the Middle East. Um, so I think what's happening, especially in the Gulf, uh, countries that are trying to diversify their economies beyond this single um, single source, this, this oil-dominant economy, to a more sustainable one. Uh, they've been involved in these, these vision uh, development plans. Saudi Vision 2030 is the most famous, but all these countries are doing the same. Those line up very, very nicely with the Belt and Road Initiative's five cooperation priorities. It's created a lot of synergy for, for cooperation, not just economically, but in terms of people-to-people, uh, uh, um, -people, uh, soft power projection, educational political coordination, investment, all of this stuff. So it's a very mature and multifaceted set of relations. And uh, going forward, of course, the, 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 what we've seen with oil prices uh, throughout the pandemic and, and the consequences this is going to have on Gulf economies is, is quite significant. But I think what they're looking at is that a, a post-COVID future in which China's going to be continue to be a major partner for them uh, so you're not going to see any kind of negative messaging coming out of, uh, of the Middle East about China, because um, those governments are all looking at China as a, as a source of, of investment and trade and loans and aid in the future. So I'll stop here for now, but I think it's a very, very um, interesting set of relationships that I think deserves a, a deeper look, because there's a lot going on here that isn't really apparent from the outside. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those remarks, Dr. Fulton. You've given us a, a really good picture of the depth and breadth of Chinese Middle Eastern relations and how those are going to be impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, for our listeners, I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to enter the queue for the question and answer portion of our call, uh, please press star one. So let's go ahead to our next speaker, uh, Jacopo Shika, who will talk about Iran's unique place in China's COVID-19 diplomacy in the Middle East. Go ahead, Jacopo. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lucille, for inviting me uh, today. And it's absolutely a great pleasure to be uh, here talking with you at the Wilson Center and also great responsibility to talk after, John, uh, after Dr. Fulton. Um, so, yeah, um, 
I, I must say that when Lucille invited me to today's event, she underlined a couple of times, as she did today also, uh, about the fact that the case of Iran is unique. And I think she is uh, very much right about this. So um, I thought that this could have been the good, a good starting point for my talk. And I think that there are two macro reasons that make uh, the Iran case unique. Certainly, the first macro reason concerns the actual impact of COVID-19 in Iran. Uh, the most striking evidence is obviously that uh, the country was the first uh, and, uh, to this point, the worst it in the region. And it's interesting to look at this fact retrospectively uh, because it's worth noting that the, the first two confirmed uh, coronavirus-related deaths in Iran dates back to February 19 which was exactly the day after the Tehran municipality lighted up the Azadi Tower, so this uh, amazing monument at the center of Tehran in red and yellow, so the colors of the uh, Chinese flag, of course, uh, projecting um, very nice slogans in solidarity with uh, the Hubei province and the city of Wuhan, uh, which was obviously a spectacular display of solidarity towards China. Uh, this was not unique. We should remember that at that point, um, the, the, the epidemic was still pretty much confined to, uh, in China, and basically many, many governments in the, in the region and uh, in Europe and all over the world uh, displayed uh, solidarity towards China. Uh, what Duran did was also sending uh, medical aids to China, masks especially, uh, which is very interesting but also not surprising, again, because this was certainly part uh, of China, of, of Iran, attempt to invest and keep investing a lot in portraying its relationship with China as both a partnership, as it was signed in 2016 when the two countries signed the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership that Jonathan mentioned before, but also a friendship. And the coronavirus uh, crisis, uh, which again at that point was limited to China, was a good ch chance to show that it's not only Beijing that helps Iran, but also Iran is there to help a friendly country when it's in need. So uh, it is quite clear, I would say, that Iran's solidarity towards China at that point had a pretty unique tone and goal. Uh, of course, we all know uh, that China responded to this uh, in the weeks, uh, in the following weeks, by sending uh, medical delegations, masks, and all these different kinds of uh, aids and supply to uh, Iran. And, but this, again, happened in a fashion that, as Jonathan said before, um, we have seen many other cases in the region and around the world. Um, also, we got uh, several declarations from Chinese officials, uh, officials about um, how the, 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 the uh, friendly and strong the relationship between China and Iran was, even during the COVID-19 crisis. And I want to just mention what the uh, Chinese ambassador to Iran at some point said, which is that China and Iran uh, are the passengers of the same boat and are moving in the same direction, and, and that one day the pandemic will be over and new spring of Iran-China strategic relationship will start. Uh, this, is not, this is quite, I would say, common vocabulary uh, common vocabulary used by Chinese officials when they speak about Iran, but it's interesting uh, in this con that it, it has been used in this context. Especially, it is especially interesting because uh, a unique example uh, and, and one of the things that makes the Iran case 
unique, as Lucille um, stressed a couple of times, is the case of Mahan Hair. Uh, this is the airline which is uh, well known to be a linked, to have strong links with the IRGC, uh, so the Revolutionary Guard in Iran. Uh, the airline kept flying between Iran and China, at least until the end of February, despite Iran's government officially suspended all the flights from and to China uh, after January, the last day of January. Um, it's very interesting because there was this very uh, well-done BBC investigation that exposed the fact that not only Mahan Hire kept flying, but also the, the crew did not, uh, were not properly quarantined after coming back and forth from China, and even more problematically, the um, ILN continued flying for a number of destinations in the Middle East and possibly contributed to the spreading of COVID-19 in the region. Um, it's very interesting, though, that uh, the Mahan Hire case um, raised a lot of complaints among some Iranian legislators, uh, public figures, and Iranian public opinion. It's an important aspect because um, if we look at Iran, um, public debate, there's a lot going on about China. Uh, it dates back especially to the pre-JCPOA era. And it's not surprising that, you know, the, the official narrative that um, Iranian government and the Iranian authority deliver, of a which is based on a strong, the idea of a strong friendship and partnership with China, uh, is not supported or completely supported by uh, a unanimous consensus within Iran. And as I said, there were voices, uh, critical voices emerging in the country and um, about both China handling of the pandemic and Iran dependency upon the People's Republics of China. Uh, this brings me well to the uh, second point, uh, second reason of uh, Iran uniqueness in this context, which is uh, which lays in the very, um, very nature of Syrian Iranian partnership, we can say. Uh, if we have to identify one uh, feature that defines China Iran partnership, well, that is that is a distinctively unbalanced relationship. Of course, there's a structural reason, which is that um, China is a great power, Iran is a middle power, but at the same time, there's a second region. Uh, which is more exogenous, there's a more exogenous dimension that works as a catalyst of this imbalance, and that is Iran international isolations, which at the moment is caused ma mainly by uh, U.S. secondary sanction. So what we see at this stage is, is that Iran needs China much more than the other way around. So the point uh, uh, is how this fundamental imbalance existing between, in the repartnership between the two countries played a role in making Iran's case unique. Well, um, there are two uh, point of view, or two uh, optics, I would say. Well, the first one is, is if we look at the broader picture, COVID-19 has definitely had uh, a huge impact on the global economy. And of course, the first country hit by, uh, economically hit by coronavirus was, was China. And the problem is that the, the shrinking Chinese demand uh, directly hit Iran. And um, quickly, if we look at March trade data between China and Iran, what we can easily spot is a spectacular drop in an already uh, modest value of China oil imports from Iran and a growing trade deficit that is, of course, alarming from, for Iran. Uh, April data were much different. We are still waiting for, May day, for the main figures, but uh, I do not expect a big change. 
And that is to say that the alarm for Iran came because the level of dependency upon China's economic lifeline is not negligible. And at the same time, what the COVID-19 exposed is that Iran is little leverage to push China to protect their partnership in face of a global crisis of that magnitude. So um, going towards the conclusion of my, my talk, um, this fundamental imbalance existing between the two countries and in, within their relationship uh, emerged also now around domestic debate about China developed in the last months. As I said before, uh, the spread of COVID-19 sort of like, you know, lighted um, light out the debate uh, about um, uh, Iran's uh, government appeasing posture toward Beijing, and there were a lot of critical voices emerging in Iran, and one of the uh, most interesting uh, part of this debate happened on Twitter, where uh, the Iran's minister spokesman at some point criticized China's way of presenting and, um, and showing coronavirus, coronavirus figures, uh, calling them a bitter joke, basically, that was in Persian. Uh, to, the, to that tweet, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Iran responded in English, saying that if, if the uh, spokesman needs uh, and wants to have correct information, he should follow the um, press release that every day the, the Chinese uh, health minister hosts. And what is very interesting is that the day after the uh, Iranian foreign minister issued a statement saying that China acted uh, bravely and professionally against COVID-19 and that Iran is thankful to Beijing. So I would say that this is a good example of how the level of Iran's dependency upon China defines the country's institutional discourse towards the PRC, even despite the existence of a quite complex and sometimes harsh debate, uh, domestic debate. So to conclude, what I would say is that, yes, the case of Iran was unique, but what is most important to understand is that all the dynamics that I tried to present and sketch in the last few minutes um, are not new, are not the product of COVID-19. Vice versa, I would say that COVID-19 exposed and fostered a series of patterns and evidence that were already in place. And for this reason, I'd say that the immediate impact of COVID-19 pandemic on China-Iran relations is that of an accelerator or a catalyst. And it would be, I think, interesting to see if the same thing probably is happening um, between China and its other partners in the region and beyond. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacopo. I think you've laid out for us um, a picture of the back and forth that's happened between China and Iran as a result of COVID-19 in the context of their very asymmetric relationship. So uh, let's move into the Q&A portion of our phone call. So listeners, if you'd like to enter the queue for question and answer, please press star one. In the meantime, I'd like to begin this part of the call with a question of my own that I'm sure many of you listening are wondering as well. So when we think about external actors in the Middle East, the first country that many of us think of is the United States. So what implications does this new COVID-19 phase of Middle East-Chinese relations have for American foreign policy in the Middle East? And in its larger Middle East strategy, is China on a trajectory to rival or even replace the U.S. in the region? Let's begin with you, Dr. Fulton, and then we can uh, have Jacopo address it as well. Sure. I mean, that's that's a really um, interesting way of looking at it, and it's something that I think a lot of us have to consider. Um, I think that China is not necessarily interested in replacing the United States. 
um, because the United States has kind of an unnatural role here, and I don't think anybody really is interested in re replicating that. Um, I think what you see in the region is a lot of extra-regional countries that have deep interests in the region, and they have their own set ideas about how the region should work and how it fits in with their interests, and uh, they, they exist accordingly. So uh, for China, it, it's not like it wants to fill the hole that the U.S. plays. It's not that the U.S. is leaving. I know that there's a lot of rhetoric about America leaving the Middle East. Um, nothing we've seen, at least in the Gulf, is really consistent with that. The troop numbers haven't diminished. Uh, arms sales haven't changed. Um, but the rhetoric on both sides of the political aisle in Washington have been very consistent across a few administrations now, saying that the U.S. should play less of a role in the Middle East. Now, um, a series of events in the past couple of years have really amped that up when, when President Trump says we've got to pull out of Afghanistan and Syria and uh, is promoting this Middle East strategic alliance that would lessen the U.S. Uh, footprint um, and, and ask local uh, states to play a bigger role. Uh, you know, these messages are, are, are heard here, and the idea is, well, you know, Middle Eastern countries have to diversify their great power or extra-regional relationships. So China certainly is at the top of the list. China's got a positive vision for the Middle East that you don't necessarily see with, say, Russia. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is something that uh, is really at the heart of all of this. Um, you know, when we look at the, the role of energy, uh, and, and I think we can all see a point in our lifetimes when, when hydrocarbons aren't uh, the, the story anymore, or the whole story at least, um, China's still going to have very deep interests in the region. Um, if you look at the big thing that China's been doing related to the Belt and Road in the region, it's gotten almost no recognition in, in the West, uh, possibly, probably because it's got a really uh, clumsy, silly name. But two years ago, there was this China-Arab States Cooperation Forum meeting. Uh, it was held in Beijing, and they announced it's called the Industrial Park Port Cooperation Pro uh, Agreement Two-Wing-Two-Wheel Approach, something clumsy like that. But what they're doing is they're pouring a lot of money and investments into Abu Dhabi's ports, uh, Dokkum in Oman, Jazan in Saudi Arabia, the base in Djibouti, Port Said, and Ain Sokna in Egypt. This is the physical infrastructure of, of China's future presence in the Middle East. Um, you take away the oil, it's still going to be there because what that does is it links them from the Persian Gulf to the uh, Arabian Sea, to the Red Sea, to the Mediterranean. So this is kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. China's not going away. Um, Gulf countries, Middle Eastern countries don't want it to go away. I think what everybody would like to see is a future where you know, the, the relationship with the U.S. continues, um, hopefully in a, in a positive way, um, that we saw with Secretary Pompeo's recent trip to Israel, where he kind of leaned on, on Israel quite heavily to say, we'd like you to not cooperate with China on anything we consider sensitive. They've said since that that, that extends to other partners and allies across the region. Um, Middle Eastern countries aren't very receptive to that idea. They don't want to have to choose one or the other. So... Um, I think it's it's a natural way to look at it. You know, China, America seems to be leaving and China seems to be filling a void, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think what we're seeing is the Middle East is becoming a much more um, active region for a lot of powers. Russia's been big, India's big, Japan and Korea are big, the European Union is big. Um, and this means that there's going to everybody's going to have to learn to kind of maneuver with each other in a in a relatively small, contentious space 
uh, without disrupting each other's interests. So, um, yeah, I think that's going to be a very important uh, set of relationships going forward, and I think China and the U.S. are going to have to find a way to, uh, to accommodate and work with each other on this. Thanks so much, Dr. Fulton, for that. Uh, your thoughts, Jacopo? Uh, well, um, I, I think Jonathan nailed it out uh, very well, and there's not much to add to this brilliant, uh, brilliant analysis of, of what's going on with China and the United States to an extent in, in the Persian Gulf, especially, and then in the region broadly. What I would say is that um, if we want to use um, the kind of language that you uh, used in, in, the, in your question, Lucille, I would say that um, we can borrow from the economic slash trade language, which, which works very well in the case of China and the Persian Gulf and the Middle East. Uh, we can say that China right now is more a competitor, if we want, in a sense that uh, it's, it's trying to, to, to find and already, has already uh, found its place in, in the region for its, its desire to trade and uh, fill uh, a space that actually exists in the region, not because uh, the United States are leaving the Persian Gulf, but because, uh, of course, this, this country uh, on both sides of the Persian Gulf uh, are very receptive of a new player that comes with uh, the idea of um, doing business uh, and, 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 and counterpose to the other partner, which is the United States, which is a little bit more interested in uh, domestic policy and influence and so on. So I would say that we are now at the stage where we can define China more as a competitor if we want. Uh, that is very good in filling some of the voids and creating a space in the region. I don't see China becoming a rival, a direct rival of the United States. This is not something that I think China wants. And, and as Jonathan said, it's not what the countries in the region and in the Persian Gulf in particular want. Uh, there have been some episodes. I would say I'm, I'm thinking about the, the recent um, the recent trip of uh, uh, Mike Pompeo to uh, to Israel and the historic B desalination uh, plant, which uh, basically uh, was was supposed to to, to the, the the project was supposed to be a Chinese one. Uh, but then, uh, after the visit, after Pompeo visit to, to Israel, uh, Israeli authorities decided that China was kicked out from uh, the project. And uh, uh, so, uh, this, this, this kind of, you know, this kind of little tension, little skirmishes, they could be some sort of uh, micro rivalries emerging between China and the United States. But I think it's still, it's still, I don't want to go too far to say that China will soon become a rival of the United States. And again, I don't want to go uh, even close to say that uh, China will replace the United States. I don't think China wants replacing the United States. China is doing, has done very well uh, exploiting the security architecture put in place by the United States. I don't think China has right now the ability uh, know the will to replace the United States. And I don't think, again, as Jonathan was saying, that the United States will go away from the Persian Gulf and the region soon, despite the, uh, the announcements made, especially by the current uh, administration. So, yeah, that's basically my, my point. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Jacopo. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Marissa Horma 
who uh, did the introduction to this ground truth briefing and is a program director at the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. Uh, go ahead, Marissa. Thank you, Lucille. And thank you uh, both to Jonathan and Rekobo for um, an excellent discussion. Um, so my question is sort of a two-part type question. Um, it was very interesting to learn more about the depth and breadth of the relationship between China and the Middle East. Um, and I know, Jonathan, you mentioned that you solely sort of hone in on the countries of the Gulf. Um, I'm just wondering how Middle East-China relations differ between the Gulf and non-Gulf non countries of the region, um, because there's clearly um, differences in what makes up that economic relationship particularly. Um, and the second question is, is with regards to the uh, Uyghurs um, issue and the treatment of Uyghurs. Is this something that, um, I mean, beyond sort of the public condemnation, which we've all seen in the media, you know, coming out of countries in the region, has there been any other more private dialogue with China um, or between China and, the, and countries of the Middle East to address this issue? Um, and has it impacted the sort of political, economic, or diplomatic relations. Thank you. Um, right. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to... No, please go ahead. Okay, well, I'll start with the Uyghur question. Um, the only regional country that's really said much about it has been Turkey, and they, they walked that back very quickly when President Erdogan went to, to Beijing shortly afterwards. Um, it's not really uh, a bone of contention with any Middle East countries. Um, there might be a few reasons for it. One is that I think, especially when, when you see, like, for example, Mohammed bin Salman went to Beijing last February, and he gave a public statement that said China has the right to deal with, with um, political disturbances however it sees fit. Now, China's been able to frame the Uyghur situation or the Xinjiang situation as a response to um, terrorism and political Islam. Now, there have been acts of terrorism, so it's not disingenuous. There have been acts, but of course it is in response to a, a really what seems like an untenable um, political situation. And it does seem, you know, to me as a Western liberal, that China's reaction is, is uh, you know, uh, inexcusable. But if you look around the Middle East, a lot of countries, a lot of governments have the same concerns about political Islam, about the, the Iqwan or the Muslim Brotherhood. So when China says, look, we're dealing with, um, you know, uh, uh, an ideology, a religious ideology that's trying to overthrow the state, well, you know, the, the Saudi government or, or other governments would, would be sympathetic to that um, perspective. So um, you don't see a lot about it here. Uh, another issue is, of course, a lot of the media in the Middle East is state-owned and, and the message gets controlled pretty tightly. So you don't hear a lot of people talking about it. My students will ask occasionally, but they don't feel... Um, that it's really a, a, a really important issue for them. Um, you know, they, they see it maybe as a, a Turkish issue. You know, the Uyghurs are a Turkic people. Um, I think the general feeling I get from talking to my students or, or friends around the region is that there's enough in the Middle East to keep them um, concerned, and they don't really feel a sense of solidarity with every Muslim issue around the world, much like I don't think every Christian would have to worry about what's happening to Christians and, you know, other places. So um, that might be a little um, on the nose, but I think that it's not really a, a, a big issue here, and it doesn't really affect the relationships. 
Um, I can't, I'm sorry. Your, your first question was uh, has, has uh, escaped me. I can't remember what. Yeah, what if, you if, asked. if there was if there was um, um, a, a different dynamic between China and oh, between the Gulf and was, oh, yes, yeah, exactly. absolutely, because there's a, a much much uh, denser set of economic relations with the Gulf countries, um, just because they are. Uh, you know, much, much wealthier. So you'll see, for example, the UAE, it's interesting, uh, the UAE, I think, is is really the, the load-bearing pillar of China's Middle East policy. Um, this is where you see most of their investment. It's where you see a huge ex- expat population. They've got a dense financial infrastructure here. Uh, I think a lot of folks look at Saudi and Iran, um, but, but really the UAE is kind of quietly the most important. Um, Qatar has been kind of important as well. Um, but then when you look at other countries like North Africa, for example, uh, the, the volume of trade or the volume of investment is, is really quite minuscule, and it's usually balanced in China's favor uh, because there's, they're not buying stuff from Tunisia or from Libya or Morocco. They're selling stuff. Um, what you see in the Gulf is it's a more balanced typically in the Gulf countries' favor because they're selling such high uh, quantities of, of energy products to China, but they're also buying a lot. Um, so in, in, I think in the GCC countries, um, almost every country has a, a deeper trade imbalance with China that favors them, except for the UAE, which exports, re-exports a lot of Chinese goods uh, to the rest of the region, and Bahrain, which doesn't really have much to sell to it. So I think the economic answer kind of explains why the Gulf is, is a little more important um, but also because that, that wealth also gives them a little more political stability, which China prizes. They don't want to invest a lot of money into countries that they feel are politically unstable or are going to have security issues. So when they look at the monarchies, um, and, and that's really how it looks, is monarchies have weathered a lot of the, the storm of the Arab Spring or the uprisings, and other uh, regime types haven't done so well. So this seems to be where they have a greater level of, of comfort, I think, in, in operating. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Fulton. Uh, Jacopo, do you have any uh, conclude, uh, follow-up remarks? Uh, well, just to the, to the second question about Uyghurs, um, yes, the, it, the, 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 the Ayatollah Khamenei, so the, the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran, has been absolutely silent about uh, the, the China's uh, violation of uh, human rights uh, of, of its Muslim minorities. And, and this is clearly a uh, very political uh, silence, uh, which somehow is, is absolutely uh, attuned to the, 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 the official declarations that came out from Iran when it comes to China, so always avoiding uh, critical and criticism towards, towards China. And of course, it's, it's, it's absolutely striking because uh, when we when we think about uh, how uh, Iran and its, its um, religious leadership has portrayed uh, itself since the, uh, the 1979 revolution as a sort of bastion of the Muslim people and oppressed people in the world, um, noting that the supreme leader of Iran remains silent. Uh, facing uh, Chinese government's systemic abuse of Uyghur Muslims, uh, human rights is, is uh, striking, and, and I would say that his silence resonates uh, quite a lot. And so, yeah, that's that's it. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Jacopo. 
Our next question comes from Patrick Farrow, who is affiliated with the Gulf International Forum. Go ahead, Patrick. Hi, uh, I got on a little late, so I hope this question hasn't already been answered, but I, we have a potential confrontation between the United States and China coming up in October when the U.S. will attempt to snap back, uh, or to prevent, I should say, uh, to prevent uh, the end of the U.N. embargo on all arms sales to, China, uh, to Iran. How does what has happened over the last few months, including the COVID-19, in the opinion of anyone on the panel, affect what China, how China may act at that time? Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, why don't we send that question first to Jacopo, given his Iran expertise? Uh, sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm pretty much sure uh, China will, um, well, what I see, I, I, so first of all, I, th I think this is going to be a major stress test for uh, the China-Iran uh, partnership um, because, of course, it's, it's, it's a very it's a very pushing issue, and for Iran, is uh, is absolutely of, of of the greatest importance. Um, so far, China has declared that they will uh, stick with the JCPOA, so they will respect. Uh, what has been written in the JCPOA, and they will oppose uh, the U.S. attempt to snap back and um, extend the arm embargo. This morning, and I'm talking about this morning in the EU time, uh, the, the um, uh, Joseph Borrell, so the, the uh, EU I representative for foreign affairs, had a chat with um, with Chinese homologue and. Uh, the, 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 what the what the uh, Borrell declared after the, uh, the this, this this phone call was that uh, the EU sticks with China and basically Russia in saying that the United States are no more part of the JCPOA, so uh, they are excluded from the, the the talk basically, and they all the the remaining parties in the JCPOA will stick to the deal. So um, my understanding is that uh, China will some, somehow um, adhere to the, to the, the, the UN uh, framework, to the Security Council framework, and do not follow the attempt of the United States to, um, to um, extend the arms embargo. Uh, I don't think the COVID-19 crisis had, uh, had an impact on this, uh, but certainly uh, I would say that the situation is very fluid, and uh, even if uh, September slash October are not that far away, uh, there's a lot that can happen in between. We always have to bear in mind that there's, there's still a, a trade war going on between China and the United States, and Iran has quite often been uh, on the table during the trade war talk, and we had some evidence of that uh, in the past months. So I guess it, it's one of the situations to monitor very closely. And, yeah, but I, I think China will, will definitely stick to the JCPOA and what the um, other parties still in the JCPOA will uh, decide and, and work on. Thank you so much, Jacopo. Uh, Dr. Fulton, do you have uh, any follow-up remarks? 
Actually, yeah, um, I do, because uh, interestingly, Patrick, you, you should log in tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to be part of an event with the Atlantic Council that, uh, that looks at this, and it's going to be a pretty interesting lineup. We're looking at it from um, we've got analysts who are looking at Russia and Turkey and Israel and, and uh, several different countries. What can we expect? Um, how are certain countries going to, to respond to you know, the, the end of this embargo. And I have a piece that's going to come up either later today or tomorrow with the Atlantic Council looking at it. And my take, and, you know, this is just my take, but I don't see China. Uh, first of all, I agree with Jacopo that I, uh, China's going to continue with the JCPOA. And I think, like most countries who are involved, want, uh, um, you know, the, the spirit of the, the deal to, to, to remain. I don't see China... Uh, becoming a big exporter to Iran, though. Uh, I think that's one of the, the interesting points as we're looking at is when, when it becomes um, possible to once again start selling to Iran, what, what, what can we expect? And I think with Russia, we can expect they've got some deals uh, in the books that they'll probably want to see through. China, when you look at what they're doing in the Middle East, they've become a pretty big Middle East um, arms sale uh, vendor in recent years. And its biggest uh, market has been the UAV market, countries that can't buy armed drones from the U.S. are getting from China. Uh, they've set up a, a facility in Saudi to uh, assemble them and service them, and they're mostly selling to Saudi, the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq, countries that aren't very fond of Iran. Iran has, of course, its own very, uh, you know, um, well-developed UAV industry. So I don't, I don't see where China would say, let's start selling stuff to a country that has no hard currency. Um, and alienate all the countries that we already have a pretty mature relationship with. Um, because really, what, what, does, what does Iran represent as a market to China um, that they don't already have from Iranian rivals in the region? So it will be a very interesting thing to watch, but I really don't see China being, uh, you know, kind of like this uh, destabilizing um, actor in this, in this uh, market. I don't think China's going to suddenly um, forget that it's motivated by profit. The other thing is China's um, arms companies are all state-owned. So there's a political component to what they're doing. And this pressure uh, from the government to say, look, we've got interests. We do a lot more business with the GCC than we do with Iran. Last year, it was something like $165 billion of trade with the GCC versus something like $20 billion with Iran. So they're not going to alienate that customer base and those partners to you know, stick it to the U.S. by working with Iran. I just don't see it. So my question was more along the lines of will they go along with extending the embargo? I don't expect the Iranians to be selling a lot to either the Chinese to be selling a lot to Iran. I don't think they're going to be interested in extending the, the embargo. Um, I think they're going to wait and see how the domestic political situation in the U.S. Um, starts to take shape in the next couple of months. Uh, most countries aren't interested in 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 this, it kind of looks disingenuous how the U.S. has pulled out of the JCPOA, but now is using, you know, the snapback option as uh, it, it doesn't look, um, it looks a little dodgy, I think, for a lot of countries. And I, I think China's been pretty clear that they, they aren't interested in supporting that. Thank you so much for that question, Patrick, and then for both of your answers. I think they're pretty illuminating on something that we should keep our eyes out for in October. Our next question comes from Guy Burton, uh, who's affiliated with Versailles University. Go ahead, Guy. Well, thank you. Thank you to both Jacobo and, and Jonathan for your comments. Um, I'd like to just sort of maybe turn it around a little bit and ask a bit, a bit about um, 
you know, sort of the denser, deeper relationships that Jonathan was alluding to um, from the social side. Um, obviously, there's been some discussion, you know, some China's main focus when it comes to the Middle East has primarily been bilateral and formal relations at, at the state level and economic relations. But if, if both, both commentators could sort of discuss a little bit about the impact of Chinese uh, policy at the, the social level, um, and especially when in relation to COVID-19, um, to what extent has the, you know, sort of China's efforts to provide assistance and support uh, played out in terms of sort of building goodwill and uh, you know winning hearts and minds. Has it has it changed uh, the way that uh, you know Middle East societies as opposed to leaders uh, see China? Thank you for that question, Guy. Uh, before we move on to answers, I'd like to let callers know that our call has been extended to 11:15, so you have 15 more minutes to ask questions. So please press star one if you have any inquiries for either of our speakers. Uh, since uh, Dr. Fulton explicitly talked about this in his answer, let's send this question over to Dr. Fulton first, and then we'll get to Jacopo. Sure. Hi, Guy. Um, yeah, in terms of, of at the, the social level, you don't see much yet. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about China has uh, kind of a soft power deficit in the region. Um, you know, that's, that's consistent with China's soft power everywhere. You know, Leninist states don't do soft power well. Um, what we see here is, is most people, so if I ask my students to name a Chinese person, they can't. You know, they'll, they'll say Bruce Lee or they'll say uh, Jackie Chan. They don't know the present name of the president. They have very little knowledge about China now. That's, that is changing. You'll see that the, 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 there's been a lot of um, events being held around the region to familiarize people with China. Um, and I don't know if it's really that important because really things are happening at the elite level. And that's kind of how it started with the U.S. too. I mean, the U.S. Um, relations with, with a lot of Middle Eastern countries aren't based on shared values or long historical connections. It started as an elite bargain and, and things flowed from that. And I think that's, we're at the early days of that happening with China. Um, people in China don't know a whole lot about the Middle East and people in the Middle East don't know a whole lot about China, but they are recognizing the importance and they're, they're starting to build towards that. So, you know, again, when I talk to my students about China, they'll say, you know, China's the, got the most troops in the Middle East. It's the biggest military power. It's the biggest everything, nothing but superlatives. All they know is just China's big and it's powerful and it's important for the future. Um, but yeah, you know, the, when MBS went to, to China last year, he announced that every K-12 school is going to be running Chinese classes. Uh, Mohammed bin Zayed from Abu Dhabi did the same last year. He went to China for a state visit last summer and announced that uh, Chinese language is going to become a part of the curriculum. That's been rolled out to, I think, something like 200 schools now. So you, you can see how that's starting to build. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few years we start to see uh, that the, the, those social connections being a bigger part. Again, it is part one of the cooperation priorities of the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, these people-to-people -people bonds, and they have mechanisms for, for developing that with their partnering countries. So, you know, it's, it's something that isn't necessarily happening organically. It's being, you know, a top-down thing, but, but that's how a lot of stuff works in the Middle East. Thank you so much, Dr. Fulton. Uh, your thoughts, Jacopo? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, first of all, hi, Guy. Um, nice to hear you asking this question because I know that you have worked quite extensive on uh, uh, polls and, and, and public opinion of, uh, towards China and the Middle East. So you're probably more expert than me. What I was saying about Iran uh, is that, you know, as I, as I said in my, in my talk before, um, a public debate about China exists. 
uh, in Iran. It was uh, it, it dates back to especially to the pre-JCPOA uh, period, and especially during the Ahmadinejad presidency, when uh, because of the international isolation of Iran and the UN Security Council sanctions, Iran was flooded by uh, Chinese products, and there was a certain anger. Uh, among Iranian, especially businessmen and, and small business owners, because uh, they went that far that uh, things that were uh, normally produced in Iran and came from China. So uh, the, the China uh, impact, Chinese impact on, on the Iranian market was pretty disruptive to, to an extent. But the, the, the thing is, what I'm saying, what I'm witnessing, and, and is that uh, you know the, this anger is not towards China, not really, not even in the case of COVID-19. It's more about uh, how the Iranian government slash political system, uh, with all its different ramifications, handle the relationship with China and the COVID-19 crisis. So um, I think that you know uh, the attitude towards China is pretty neutral, not that different that of that uh, normal Iranians have, have uh, towards the United States. Uh, as Jonathan was saying, even in Iran, there's a lot of these people-to-people uh, projects and soft power um, initiative. Uh, made by China, um, this people-to-people exchange were one of the agreements signed in 2016 when the two countries signed the comprehensive strategic partnership. In Iran, there are a lot of Chinese uh, um, tourists. Um, there are uh, Iranian students going to China and some Chinese students going to Iran. So I'm, I'm not going to see the the the, the, the COVID-19 as sort of like uh, having a, a wide, a big impact in one way or another on uh, how Iranians perceive China. Uh, probably it, it, it's going to have an impact and on on how uh, the Iranians perceive the relationship the government and their establishment has on China, which you, you as I'm sure you understand, is slightly different. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically my point. Thank you so much for that, Jacopo. Our next question comes from Nika Ching, who is coming from the Voice of America. Uh, go ahead, Nika. Uh, thank you very much, Lucille. My name is Nike, actually. Um, but thank you um, for the webinar. If I may please ask about Iraq. Uh, generally speaking, how uh, do you uh, – how um, – this question may be addressed to uh, Dr. Fulton. Uh, how do you envision U.S. relations with Iraq move forward in post-COVID-19 era and as the de-ISIS campaign seems to gain momentum? Thank you. Thank you so much for that question. Why don't we head this over to Dr. Fulton first and then Jacopo? Okay. Yeah, actually, I'd rather Jacopo take that one because I don't – actually, I can't talk to – too deeply about Iraq. I mean, China's been investing a lot there. They've been um, putting a lot of money into energy infrastructure projects. Uh, the trade has been increasing as well. Um, and that comes with, as, as you alluded to, it comes with a, a big security risk that China doesn't necessarily have a big appetite for. Uh, so we've seen private security firms kind of uh, playing a bigger role in, in protecting China's SOEs and protecting its investments 
and it's, to me, it's a really interesting question that I haven't really explored a whole lot yet because uh, the, the fundamental pillar of China's foreign policy has been this non-interventionist um, uh, uh, to not intervene in other countries and, and now they're sending these private security firms into countries to protect their, their, their assets and their, their investments. So this will be really interesting to see what it does uh, in Iraq um, and in Syria, for example, if they get involved in reconstruction. But uh, perhaps Jacopo uh, can uh, speak a little more eloquently to this point than me. Um, well, to, to, to be fair, I have not much to add, um, and um, yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, I, again, it's, it's not really my my focus, and and probably uh, Jonathan exhausted uh, everything I, I could have said about this. Uh, certainly, um, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that China doesn't want to be involved in in situation of conflict. Um, so, I, yes, um, there have been this this reports from last month, I think from May, that, that Iraq suddenly became China's main um, uh, supply of oil. That's probably because there were some, some delays in, China, in Saudi deliveries. But uh, again, I think that, as in the case of Syria, which uh, Jonathan correctly mentioned, uh, there would be an extent, uh, to an extent uh, a Chinese involvement in the reconstruction or of the countries, uh, but this is something that will only happen uh, consistently when and if the situation comes down and China can go there with enough uh, safety uh, not to be, because certainly China doesn't want, again, to be involved in, in the situation of conflict and uh, doesn't certainly want to send troops uh, in these countries, and so it's, it's quite obvious that at this point in Syria, Iraq, uh, and this, uh, in, in these countries where the situation is still boiling and, uh, and risk of you know, new um, conflicts and so on is, is, is there to, to be seen. Um, China doesn't want to get involved much uh, on the ground, I would say. Um, exporting oil, buying oil, and all this stuff is already a different uh, a different matter, but uh, going on the ground is definitely uh, problematic for China in this kind of countries. Yeah. Yes, and um, if I may, I'd like to add a point about Iraq as well. Uh, in addition to sort of its very risk-averse behavior, one thing that characterizes Iranian-Chinese relations is that Iran will use Iraq as sort of a thorough way to export oil to China without incurring sanctions. Uh, so that's something to look out for uh, in addition to everything else our speakers both addressed. Our next question uh, comes from uh, Dan Katz. Um, and Dan, if you could tell us uh, your affiliation, that would be lovely. Uh, go ahead, Dan. Uh, hi, I'm just kind of an independent researcher who's very interested in China's engagement with the Middle East. Um, thank you very much to both the speakers. It's always great seeing your work, hearing y'all speak on these topics. Um, what I was just kind of wondering is <clears throat> before the pandemic started, you were already seeing a slowdown in kind of the amount that China was investing abroad, whether it be BRI projects or kind of however you look at its infrastructure investments. And then kind of on top of that, we now have the economic slowdown and recovery from the pandemic. So what I was wondering is how do you kind of see this general, like, slowdown in kind of overall, like, um, 
economic engagement on the part of China with the rest of the world, affecting its relationships with the countries of the Middle East, which, as you all have said, are looking to China to help them diversify uh, their economies away from oil. Thanks for that question. Let's go to Dr. Fulton, and then we can have Jacopo. Yeah. Uh, hi, Dan. Good to hear from you again. I think this is an interesting point because, yeah, we have seen that the BRI uh, does seem to be slowing down a bit. But an important point, I've, I've alluded to this a couple of point, times uh, in this call today, is that the BRI is, is, consists of five different cooperation priorities. We tend to focus on the big infrastructure projects and, and, and associate that with the BRI. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, the, the cooperation priorities are um, political coordination, uh, facilities and infrastructure, infrastructure construction, uh, trade, in uh, financial integration and people-to-people relations. So there's a lot more to it than, than, than just the economic side. Um, a lot of it's normative, and I think that's why it kind of resonates in the Middle East, because there's a lot more uh, similarity in, in governance types between the PRC and most of the Middle East. Um, again, you know, when, when the U.S. Or, or Western countries talk about issues like human rights or, or free press or, or democracy promotion, uh, that doesn't resonate here at all. But what China, what China does in, in terms of governance or in terms of its, uh, um, well, just, just in general, it, it, it does resonate. There's a big appetite here to learn how a country went from one of the poorest in the world to the second biggest economy in 40 years. Um, and how they've been able to do that with tremendous economic reform without political reform. So I think what we'll see is those those other parts of the BRI maybe are going to be, come into focus a little more sharply in, in the next couple of years while everybody's trying to uh, recover economically. You'll probably see a lot more uh, political coordination between China and Middle East countries. You're going to see, again, this, this people-to-people soft power component start to get built up. You're going to see um, other ways that they, they try to intensify their cooperation uh, to, to get some positive momentum because, again, um, this is, I think, the future. I don't think China's going to go away just because, uh, you know, the economy slows down. It's going to continue being a pretty important regional actor. So that, that's my take is I just, I would just expect to see different components of the relationship draw a bigger focus and the big splashy infrastructure stuff maybe is going to go quiet for a little while. Thanks so much, Dr. Fulton. Jacopo, uh, your thoughts on economic slowdown and COVID-19? Yeah, um, um, I, I think Jonathan was absolutely right in what he said, and, and, but sticking to the, to the economic and slash infrastructural side, I would say that probably um, there would be a general slowdown, this is understandable, but if I have to say and to guess what will happen is that this slowdown will be uh, much, much bigger in Iran rather than in the uh, Gulf countries. Uh, um, that, 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 that's basically for what John said, Jonathan said a um, couple of answers ago, that, you know, uh, there's no uh, – the, the involvement that China has in the, in the Arab Gulf is uh, how it matches the, the, that, that China has with Iran. And also because, of course, um, in the case of Iran, there are other external, uh, as I said in my, in my talk, exogenous elements that slows down, slow down China um, involvement in, in, in the country and in the infrastructural project in the country and Belt and Road Initiative-related projects. Uh, U.S. sanctions are there. We don't know what will happen 
if a new administration is elected, a new president is elected uh, at the end of the year, we know what will happen, but certainly uh, the logic is that uh, if there's a slowdown and investment will be, you know, probably uh, smaller uh, on the infrastructure slash economic side, probably Gulf countries which are more stable, more open, uh, with less problems coming from other partners would be beneficial uh, of this uh, new situation, while Iran will be its, uh, the most, as, as it has been so far, because, you know, we've got a lot of examples of uh, projects, Chinese projects that uh, slow down to the point of being uh, halted, cancelled, or uh, posed because of U.S. sanction, and I guess that, you know, uh, the, the COVID-19 is another exogenous um, factor that will definitely push against China involvement in Iran. Thank you so much, Jacopo. Uh, our last question comes from Dennis Murphy, who is a student. Uh, since we only have three minutes left, if I could remind uh, the questioner and the speakers to try and keep it brief, uh, that would be appreciated. Go ahead, Dennis. Thank you very much. Okay, I will be very brief with this one. I was wondering if I could learn a little bit more about the BGI, uh, BGI, PG1 um, Shenzhen company that's doing business in Abu Dhabi and leading the COVID crisis. Thank you very much. Let's turn this over to Dr. Fulton. Sure, I can be brief. There was a really good article in, in Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago by a journalist based here in Dubai named uh, Sylvia Westall. And she took a pretty deep dive into what BGI is doing in the Middle East. Uh, it was a really helpful article for me. I learned quite a bit from it. And also Simeon Kerr at the Financial Times, also in Dubai, published a piece, I believe, last week that also looked at it um, and, and how it affected the relationship with the U.S. and the UAE and China. So I would say check out those two articles uh, with Simeon Kerr's piece in Financial Times. It was uh, – I can't see the date here, but – uh, U.S. and China vie for influence in UAE as coronavirus increases tension. It was Sylvia Westhall's. It was Bloomberg last month. Uh, I can't remember the date or the title, but very, very good analysis. Very helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Thank, sure, thank you both. Um, unfortunately, due to time constraints, we're going to have to come to the end of our ground truth briefing on China's COVID-19 diplomacy in the Middle East. On behalf of the Wilson Center's Middle East Program and Kissinger Institute, I'd like to thank both of our speakers, Jonathan Bolton and Jacobo Shita. And I'd like to thank everybody else who dialed into the call and asked questions. Uh, so I encourage you to tune in for more Ground Truth briefings, uh, if possible. I find them to be a really useful forum for getting to the details of the challenges facing our international community. Uh, and with that, uh, have a good day, I suppose. Thanks, Lucille. Thank you. That concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.